reckon we need to pray before we get into probably one of the hardest uh, chunks of Scripture in Romans. Uh, but before we do that, let me just uh, say, straight after the gathering, I am just going to be bolting out the door. And it's not because I've just preached on God's wrath, right? <laughs> I'm not kind of dropping a bomb and then leaving and, and letting Tim and the other guys kind of just sweep up um, after me. Uh, this is a really tough um, part of Scripture to preach from. That would never be my intention. I'm actually going uh, back to Ireland uh, for a week, and um, so I need to get a flight Uh, But guys, I I think we need to pray as we dig into this. So why don't you pray with me? Um, Father God, I I just ask that you will help us by your spirit to understand this deeply um, difficult part of your word. Um, Help us, Father, as a result of looking at this to um, know more deeply who you are and what that really means for us and how it impacts the way that we live and what that means for the people around us. Um, Father God, would you... Um, not just um, help us to engage with this intellectually, um, but would you help us to engage with this in the depths of our heart in such a way that we see um, encouragement and transformation and rebuke and all of those things kind of working, Lord, so that you might make us more like you. Amen. Um, Over the last number of months, Catherine and I have been watching an awesome show on Netflix called Atypical. Has anybody watched Atypical? So, so good. It's a story about a, a young bloke on the autism spectrum called Sam Gardner. And uh, really, it's a bit of an exposition, a bit of an insight into the life of his family and how his autism kind of impacts um, his relationships with his mom, with his dad, with his sister. And, and in it, you just get this no holds barred, the good, the bad, and the ugly all kind of just coming um, straight through. Um, to the foreground. Doug, his dad, right, is this kind of like resolute Brooklyn. He sounds like he's from like a, an Irish background paramedic um, who works hard. He loves his family. Um, at first, when he found out about his son having autism, he, he found it deeply, deeply hard, but he was courageous enough and he was, he was strong enough that, that, that with the help of his family, he, he kind of rose to that continue to love his family and continue to do that with his heart on his sleeve. And and we kind of pick up the story a little bit later. Elsa, Sam's mom, um, she's kind of depicted as the backbone of the family. Uh, She's the person who has kind of discovered everything that there is to know about people that are on the spectrum and then kind of sought to build a family of love. And sometimes she's a little bit overbearing in her love, if you've seen it. Um, she overparents just a little bit. Um, but for her, um, she is kind of just this picture of the person that's holding the family together. It's really authentic, it's raw. And, uh, and it looks like when you're watching this couple and when you're watching this family just play out on screen, it looks like nothing could go wrong. Their, their love looks like it's completely solid, like things are strong. They've sacrificed for each other so much. They've worked out ways of being able to care for one another for many years through the ups and downs of life. Then one day, Elsa randomly meets this sexy barman, right? And, um, and as she's sitting in the bar, this barman kind of woos her and starts to woo her away from her husband. And she ends up committing adultery with him, and Doug finds out. Now, what do you think Doug's response was? I'm sorry if I ruined this for you, but what do you think 
Doug's response was. He was furious. He was so angry, actually, that he punched a hole in the wall and that he ended up kind of just having such frustration and anger at the betrayal of his wife, Elsa. Then he leaves the house. And for days and for weeks, you just see this bloke as someone who is grieving and he is angry and he is just grieving the loss of what has happened. And then his wife Elsa kind of comes back in from time to time. And, and she seems to make a little bit of light of the situation and, and, and kind of just thinking that it's maybe not all that bad. And he can't, just, he can't even bear to look at her. She tries just to diminish what has happened. And, and you see his whole demeanor. His face just drops. His shoulders just drop. Not in an anger outburst at this point, but just in deep anger and hurt. And he turns his face away from her. Now, do you think that was an appropriate response? I'm not asking if you think that it was appropriate for him to put his fist through a wall or, or kind of the moral around the whole situation, but his emotional response. Was that an appropriate response, do you reckon? Seeing a few nods. You're kind of too scared to answer, aren't you? I, I, I want to say yes. I want to say that his response to that situation was entirely appropriate. Why? Why? Well, I want to suggest to you that his response of anger and his response of wrath was appropriate because of his deep love for Elsa. It's appropriate because of his deep love for Elsa. In fact, if Doug would have responded in indifference, or if he would have responded by just shrugging his shoulders and going, yeah, you know what, Elsa? It's kind of not that big a deal. It's no worries. What would you think about him? You'd think there was something wrong, wouldn't you? You wouldn't really think that he loved her all that much. You see, indifference is not the opposite. Or indifference is the opposite of love, not anger. Let me say that again. Indifference is the opposite of love, not anger. It's because Doug loves Elsa that he is angry at this situation. It's because Doug loves Elsa that, that no other response really is all that appropriate, right? Now, why are we looking at atypical? Well, I want to suggest to you today that the only way that we can understand this really tough idea of God's wrath is if we see it in a similar light, relationally, but then in a similar light philosophically as well as we think about what wrath is and what it isn't. And I want to suggest to you today that God's wrath is an appropriate response from a loving God towards His people who have turned away from Him. That God's wrath is an appropriate response towards, from a loving God towards people who have turned their back on Him and betrayed Him. And as we work through that, I want you to have that picture just in the back of your mind. And we're going to look at four things, the re reality, the reason, the result, and the response of God's wrath. And so firstly, the reality of God's wrath. There's no avoiding this, right? 
We can't kind of read the Christian Bible and, and get to this point and then just skip over it. There's absolutely no avoiding the reality of God's wrath here. It's in plain sight, isn't it? The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. But the reality of God's wrath is not something that is in opposition to his love, but something that is an appropriate response because of his love. Imagine with me for a second, right, that Doug was like God. No, no, he's not God, but imagine that Doug is like God, and, and we're a little bit like Elsa. God is this perfect husband. He's the kind of husband who always looks out for his wife, who is always caring for her. He knows her deeply and intimately. He provides for her emotionally, spiritually, physically. And in fact, there's nothing that she wants for. There is nothing that she lacks in that relationship whatsoever. He's there when she cries and when she laughs. He's the kind of husband who, who gives room to flourish and, and to kind of fly, but yet at the same time, not beyond um, that relationship because, because it's so good. Like there's literally in this relationship no time where, where you would feel unloved, underappreciated, where you would feel that you were insecure or undervalued. There would never be a time in this relationship where you would feel under par or, not with, or without purpose. Like just perfect, perfect love. But then you go and believe the lie of the sexy young barman, right? And, and he starts to woo you away and, and, and you committed adultery. And, and just like Elsa, you started to make light of the whole situation and just go, well, God, you know what? It doesn't really matter all that much. It was just a little fling. It's no big deal. He doesn't mean much. But then, like, unlike Elsa, you kind of go that one step farther where you just become so complacent to it that you're very, very open about what it is that you're doing. And then one day you arrive home with sexy barman when your husband's there getting the kids ready for school and you both sit down at the breakfast table as if nothing has happened. Then you go up to the room and you climb into bed and you just kind of forget about everything that's going on. You get lost in the moment. You disregard, disrespect, and disassociate yourself from the fact that your husband is even there. What is the appropriate response of a loving husband at that point? What is it? It's anger, isn't it? It's raw. Not because that's the opposite of love, but because it's from his love that he is angry. It's because of his love. It's the only response, isn't it? To that kind of hurt and that kind of betrayal. To that kind of injustice. Establish, I think, Part of what Paul has got in his mind here is the whole way back in Genesis 3. 
And, and this picture that I've just presented to you, I think reflects what happened back in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. And ever since then, every person that has ever lived has responded to God like that. Which we'll get to in a moment. But for now, I want you just to feel the, the, the reality and even the appropriateness of God's response in this, if what the Bible says is true. But I also want you to see something else. I want you to see that unlike Doug, right, God's wrath and anger is different. The problem for us is we experience wrath that is kind of all warped by sin. And it's very easy for us to look at Doug and go, well, he shouldn't have punched the wall and he shouldn't have kind of done all of the things that he did. And he was probably actually complicit in some way because he wouldn't have been all that perfect, right? And, and we, we kind of just don't have an experience where we experience perfect, unsinful wrath. And what we do is then we take our experience and we project that onto God and, and our understanding of His wrath. But they're very, very different. And, and this is, I still struggle to work out and what this looks like in reality because I don't think we've got a full picture of it. But the word that's used there for wrath, right, is a bit difficult to see, um, but in Greek is the word orge, right? And uh, what that means is that this is actually, there's different words for wrath, but this particular one is talking about God's righteous anger. Now, righteous is just a way of kind of saying right and appropriate anger. It's measured, it's fair, it's balanced. It's there for the purpose of seeking out true justice, not vengeance, not repercussion, but, but justice. Now, it's a bit difficult to see it there from that one word in the English, but if you read through the Bible, it's very, very difficult to come to the conclusion that God's wrath is something that is not balanced and right and just. There might be times where we're tempted to see it that way. There might be times where it definitely looks that way. But when you look across the whole kind of portion of the Bible, it never really gives us the option of coming to that conclusion. And, and you get a bit of a hint of it in chapter 3, I reckon. And we'll look at that in a few weeks. But I actually think that Paul here, what he's doing is he's actually helping us to see that that's the case, right? As he shows us the reason for God's wrath. And Paul gives us two reasons in this. There's kind of like lots of things embedded, but ultimately he gives us two reasons. He said the reason for God's wrath is that we suppress the truth of God and we substitute him for something else. We suppress and we substitute. Have a look. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Or the word there is more like unrighteousness. The, reasons for, the reason for God's wrath is that people suppress the truth about God. Now, before I became a Christian, um, I kind of used to say to people a lot, hey, you know what, if God kind of wants me to know who he is, if he wants me to know that he's there, if he wants me to know how much that he loves me um, and all of that stuff, well, then he should just make himself blatantly clear. He should make himself completely obvious. And, and we used to do all sorts of things and pray that God would kind of just show up somehow and, and whatever so that I knew that he was there. And, and this one guy said to me once um, at school, he said, Lee, you're just being 
like, you're being really arrogant right now. And I'm like, why? Like, like you're being arrogant. You're a Christian. You're arrogant. And, um, and, and he said, look, can't you see? Like, if you open your eyes and you look around, can't you see that God is there? Do you think that all of this is here by chance? And Paul's kind of saying something similar here, right? He's saying, look around because God has made it plain. The problem, you see, that Paul's presenting here is not that there is not enough evidence, but that what we do is we suppress that evidence. We try to push it down like pushing a basketball down into a pool. Have a look at verse 20. For since the creation of the world... God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. The reason for God's wrath is not that He's playing some kind of cosmic hide-and-seek, right? Playing a game with you where you can never find Him and then He punishes you for a game that you could never win. That's not what's going on here. And, And this idea was driven home for me a number of years ago, I visited a friend of mine who worked at a church called St. Andrew the Great, one of the most famous churches in England, based in Cambridge, just close to the university. And, uh, and, and at the gathering that I went to when I was there, probably about four out of five people that I talked to had PhDs, right? And they were on to their second and their third PhDs, like so smart that it just hurt your brain talking to them. But I was quite intrigued because Cambridge is kind of one of the places it's renowned for people who would argue against God. But yet here, and we had a whole bunch of people, many of them uh, were scientists at this church believing in God. And I asked a number of them, why, um, you know, like, why did you come to church? What was it that brought you to church? And the general answer that I received from them was, look, for many years, I actually believed that God didn't exist. I kind of didn't think that there was even a possibility of God. And then once I started doing my research, whatever it might have been, some of them were looking at nanocellular, um, like, I don't even know how to say it, it's so complicated. Um, Some of them were looking at astrophysics, a whole bunch of different people. And they said, look, the closer that I looked at this single cell, the closer that I looked at the constants of the universe the more I realized that that couldn't be there by chance. The more that I realized that God was actually there all along, that there was a creator behind the created. But the problem is that's not all that sin does here, right? It it suppresses, but it doesn't just suppress the truth. It also substitutes God by exchanging him. Have a look at verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God or gave thanks to Him. Then come down a little bit. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Did you see it there? They exchanged or they substituted the glory of God for something else. We're made as worshiping beings. 
If it's true what the Bible says, that we are created by God and for God, we are people who are made to worship Him, to actually ascribe Him glory, or to give thanks to Him for everything that we have. That's kind of the story of the Bible, right? But instead, we don't. We substitute God. We substitute Him for ourselves, for our work, for our family, for money, for education, for success, whatever you can kind of insert it in there. It doesn't really matter. And Paul is saying here that the reason for God's wrath is because we suppress the truth about God, but then we also substitute God. Like, and I think we see this in atypical where Elsa actually starts suppressing the truth about the fact that her husband really loves her. And, and as she kind of suppresses, then this sexy young barman comes along and he, she substitutes her husband for this guy. But with God, it's way worse than that. And, and we don't call it adultery. We've got another name for it. And I don't say it all that different. It's idolatry. It's not adultery at this point. It is idolatry. And and establish, here's what I want to say, because I think this is what Paul is really getting at. This grieves God. It makes him angry. That's the reason for his wrath. What truth about God are you suppressing? At Establish, we love the fact that um, people can come here and they can explore Jesus and that you guys can do that even over a long time and we wrestle with you on the evidence for Jesus and we wrestle with you for the existence of God and and, and how faith in Jesus is the core thing to live for. And and we love that. And, And we want to continue to be a church that keeps on doing that. But let me just ask you, today, could it be that the reason that you haven't put your trust in Jesus yet, not be so much because of the evidence, but more as a result of the fact that you're just pushing that evidence down? Every time it gets close to kind of coming up to the surface, you just keep on pushing it down and suppress the truth. Could it be that the evidence is actually all around you? You know it's there, but you just keep on suppressing it. What about this? What evidence would actually be evidence enough for you to put your trust in Jesus? I think Paul's actually forcing us to ask these questions today. And I also reckon actually for all of us in the room, um, he's forcing us here at this point to ask this, right? What is it that we're substituting God for in our lives? What is it that we're substituting God for in our lives? What is it that we're living for more than God? Where are the areas in our life that we're giving God more, or we're giving that more gratitude than God? What has your love? Where do you spend your time and your money? Where do you daydream? What are the things that you think about that will be the thing that means that you will have had success and that you will make it? Now, I suspect that there's many things, right? Many things that you could put as an answer 
um, to that question because God has made this creation for us to enjoy. And, and there is enjoyment to be found in it. Those things are not inherently bad. But if we do not have God as number one in all of those questions and in many other, and in fact, in every area of our life, then what we are doing is we are substituting God. The reason for God's wrath is that we have suppressed the truth about God and we have substituted Him for something else. That's the core diagnosis, right, of what Paul's talking about here, which we need to grasp because if we don't, we get the next bit terribly wrong. So we need to grasp that this is the diagnosis because if we don't, we get the next bit terribly wrong um, as we look at the result of God's wrath. And you see what Paul goes on to describe in verse 24. If you've got your Bibles, have a look um, because you see that he kind of has that word for um, he goes on to describe then what the result of suppressing and substituting is. I don't know if you noticed in verse 18, right? So just come back with me to verse 18. Something really interesting. Paul's not talking here about the future wrath of God, right? He's not talking here about the future wrath of God, a time where Jesus will come back and judge the living and the dead. And what he's saying here is that the wrath of God is being revealed. Do you see it? The wrath of God is being revealed. It's something that is present tense. Now, next week, we're going to look at um, the wrath of God in the end as we look at Romans chapter 2. But here we have to ask, what way? Like, that's a really, really weird thing to say, isn't it? In what way is the wrath of God being revealed in the present? Here's what God, what God, here's what Paul um, says. I think it's God as well, right? Um, here's what Paul says. This phrase, God gave them over. In fact, to make sure that we get the point, Paul says that phrase and he repeats it three times, right? In verse 24, verse 26, and verse 28. And what he basically means is that, that God, the wrath of God is being revealed in the fact that God has given people over, and basically what that means is he has given them what they want. That's the basic understanding. It's kind of like God saying, look, you want to suppress the fact that I made the world and everything in it and that I made you. You want to kind of look at the hints in creation and just choose to ignore me. You want to kind of choose to live as though I don't exist. You want to live for everything else other than me, then I'll hand you over to that. I'll give you over to what it is that you want. And establish, I think that's one of the scariest lines in this whole bit. That God would give us over to what we want. That idea of freedom is kind of really appealing, isn't it? It kind of feels like this is the place where we would flourish and this is the place where we would get the most out of life. But according to the Bible, according to the Bible, all this means is that we just substitute God for something else that will never deliver what it is that we truly need and we will never truly find ourselves. We'll be constantly looking for the next thing. We'll be constantly doing that and as a result, we'll be constantly seeing the wrath of God just being revealed in our lives as we just continue to ignore him. Interestingly, um, Doug 
does this to Elsa, I think. Um, he ends up handing her over to her own desires, essentially, and, and, and she goes, and, and you see her in the story and kind of just going around trying to fill that void with all sorts of things, and, and none of it works. And, uh, and she ends up finding herself kind of trying to come back into the home and whatever. But it's just this, this picture um, of the fact that she chased after this young bloke and, and it didn't really deliver what she wanted. And then she just seems to be entrapped by the fact that her husband has just handed her over to her own desires. And she goes and tries to fulfill it and it just doesn't work. It really, really insightful um, part of that... Um, of that drama, but it's much more serious for us, right? Because you see, in God handing us over to our own freedom and our own desires, what happens is that we're cut off from the ultimate source of good. We're cut off from the life giver, from the one who made us, from the one who knows what it is that makes us tick. And as a result, we see as well that what we do is we cut ourselves off from the one who sets the ultimate good in our world. And we start to set our own laws and our, our own morals. And instead of those things bringing us great freedom, they seek to kind of slave us in many ways. And as we're kind of cut off, we just see that God's rules and His things are things that are there just to crush us and control us. And what Paul does is, he just then highlights, right, some evidence that what he has said is true. Really what he's trying to do is he's trying to show the symptoms of the fact that the diagnosis is true, that what all people have done is they've suppressed and they've substituted God. And, and we have to get the balance there right. And, and he points to lots of things in this passage. Um, but rather than us working them through, here's what I want to help you to do. I want to help you to think about this and work it out for yourself. I don't want to give you all the answers because, you see, there's a massive elephant in the room here, isn't there? Huge elephant in the room because he gives an example of same-sex sex in this. He actually even uses some words that are really difficult to, to deal with. And so what I'd rather do today, because we don't have the time to deal with that entirely, what I'd rather do is help give you a couple of things that will help you tackle that elephant that'll help you kind of wrestle with it and help you think beyond um, just what I might say in five minutes or so. Um, so here's a couple of things that I want you to see. The first is this, that Paul is not singling out same-sex sex in this passage. That's not his focus. It's not even his purpose in this whole bit, right? In fact, if you look at the very first thing that he highlights there, he actually highlights this thing called sexual immorality. And really what he's saying is that's a blanket term for all sex that is outside the sex between a married man and a, and a woman, because that is what the Bible sets up as the ultimate good from God, right? And then, and only then he mentions in 26 and 27, same-sex sex, but then come down to verse 28 and following. Kind of in the similar vein, here's some of the things that he mentions. Greed, envy, Murder, strife, malice, gossip, slander, and even disobedience towards your parents. We single out same-sex sex when we read this because it's a very, very palpable issue. For some of you guys, it's a very, very hurtful 
and tough issue. But Paul's not sampling, singling out same-sex sex here. That's not what he's doing. What he's saying is, you want to see that what I'm saying is true. Then have a look around. And here's just a cross sample of a whole range of different things that point to the fact that what people have done is they have suppressed the truth about God and substituted him. That's what he's trying to do. And Christians have got this wrong in the past, right? This has led um, Christians and churches to overemphasize um, stuff like this. And, and as a result, we've, we've deeply hurt people um, and uh, deeply hurt people within the LBGTQI community. Um, we've alienated people who struggle with same-sex attraction. Um, we've done all sorts of things because we have got this wrong and we haven't really grasped what Paul's really doing here. And I want to say to you that if if you are one of those people that have kind of sat at the wrong end of this, I, I want to actually say sorry. Deeply, deeply sorry that that's been your experience. But I do have to say here as well, the second thing, that it doesn't mean that these things don't matter. Everything on this list matters. In fact, Paul could probably continue the list way farther. Everything on this list matters. And, and if we don't understand what Paul's trying to do here, it's actually really easy just to rub that bit out, to kind of read it. Like, you know what I mean? You're not going to read this with your mates in the cafe. Really, you'd probably just flick over this bit. But we can't do that. Paul is saying that these things matter. He's not saying that there's an ultimate difference between one or the other. He's just saying that they all grieve God. Because they're a reminder of the fact that we suppressed him and we substituted him. Third thing, the example that Paul gives here um, as our result of God's present wrath, they will not ultimately be the reason for his future wrath. Let me say that again. Um, the examples that Paul gives here are a result of God's presence, present wrath, they will not necessarily be the ultimate reason for his eternal future wrath. Now, remember the reason? What's the reason? Tell me the two S's. Suppress and substitute. That is ultimately what God's final judgment will be against. The other things matter for sure. It's not that those things won't be brought to account. They will. But these things are the result of God's present wrath. Not necessarily his future wrath. And, and finally, you need to see that the things on this list don't exclude you or anyone from the saving work of Jesus. The things on this list don't exclude you or anyone from the saving work of Jesus. And to better get that, we need to look at the last thing, which is the response of God's wrath. You see, all of this comes in the context of what we looked at last week. If you weren't here for the sermon last week, go back and have a listen. And, but all of this is in the context of the fact that Paul is saying that the gospel about the good news of Jesus is something that is good news for everyone because it brings salvation to all. And here's what I want you to get as we kind of close the loop on thinking about God's wrath. 
This is good, and it's good news, not because God ignored our sin. Not because God responded in indifference. Not because God just shrugged his shoulders and kind of thought, this doesn't really matter. It's not all that bad. But because God decided to actually take the wrath and bear that wrath on himself. Later on in Atypical, Doug starts to forgive Elsa. But it doesn't come without a cost. He has to absorb his anger. He has to choose not to hold that thing against Elsa, even though she deserves it, right? For us, this idea is way bigger and it's way more glorious than that. And Paul describes it in Romans 3.25. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. Verse 26, he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. Because that's something that was also being revealed as well. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. The response of God's wrath is to provide a way that God's wrath might be redirected away from us and towards his son on the cross. And this is good news for us. It's good news for us because he doesn't just gloss over it. He is the just and, and that means that he actually truly deals with it so that he can also be the justifier, declare us as people who are right. Here's why it's good. God has to deal with sin. If he didn't, I want to suggest to you that he is not a very loving God. Because you see, wrath and love, they're not the opposite. In fact, I don't think you'd want to follow a God like that. I wouldn't. Yet that's not what he decided to do. That's not what he decided to do. He decided to actually take it on himself and offer that up freely for everyone who believed. It was here at the cross that the wrath of God was actually satisfied in full for all that might believe in him. awesome, isn't it? You know, Jesus, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, just before he went to the cross, he said, Father, if it is possible, would you take this cup from me? It wasn't that he had a bevy there in the garden. That was talking about the cup of God's wrath. And, and he was kind of saying, if there is any other way, take that from me. But there wasn't, because if God is to be a God of love, he has to deal with his wrath and the way that he did that. His response was to take that upon himself at the cross. And I want to leave you with two things that this means for you um, moving forward into tomorrow and into the rest of the week. Here's the first thing. This means that you no longer need to fear. If you trust in Jesus and you have faith in Jesus, you no, no longer need to fear the wrath of God. You no longer need to fear the wrath of God. The wrath of God was satisfied for all of your present sin, all of your future sin, all of your past sin, in full. 
And I know that some of you struggle to believe that because I struggle to believe it because you know what happens for me? I believe it, I believe it, I believe it. And then I'm reminded of something that I did 10 years ago. And it kind of raises up and, and I go, man, did God really forgive me for that? Yes. If you trust in Jesus, it's paid in full. Or you get tripped up again by that sin that you just keep on kind of tripping up and tripping up. And it feels like, doesn't it, that God is there just kind of walking alongside you, hoping for you to trip up and hoping for you to fall so that he can just smite you. That's not the picture of God's wrath that we see here. If we believe that, then we're believing a wrong picture about God. No, 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 no. If you trust in Jesus, that was paid in full. Keep going. Keep getting back up. Keep trusting and fix your eyes on Jesus. But secondly and lastly, even though God has, God has forgiven you, even though he's invited you back into his home, he's no longer holding and this against you, that you suppressed him and that you substituted him and, and you kind of did all sorts of things that, that resulted in that. He's not holding any of that against you and he invites you back into relationship with him. That doesn't mean that we are at liberty to keep on sinning. That doesn't mean that we take these things lightly. You see, our sin still grieves God. It would be a little bit like Elsa going back into the home after having been forgiven by Doug and inviting another bloke in and just hiding it and continuing to do that over and over again. That would matter, wouldn't it? And so it does with God. So let me ask you, as you were reading through the list of things earlier, what is it that the Holy Spirit has maybe been highlighting for you? As we deal with this really tough topic of, of God's wrath, maybe like me, as you're coming in, uh, you know, to, to prepare for um, hearing this message, God's already kind of raising a few things in your mind. What is it? What is it? Deal with it. Our sin grieves God. We're not at liberty to continue in it. This is serious, serious stuff. But we know because Jesus paid the price for us that we can ask for forgiveness and he will forgive us. Establish, this has been huge. But if you're going to understand God's wrath, you need to see that the reality of his wrath is that it's not something that is separate to his love, but it's something because of his love. We need to grasp the reason and really, really get the reason for God's wrath, and that is that we suppress the truth about God and we substitute God for someone or something else. And because of that, and it's only because of that that we see the result of God's wrath, that people are handed over to their own freedom, to their own life without God. But God's response to that, and how good is this, that he made a way that that wrath could be redirected so that we could stand here justified. I'm going to pray. Um, Father God, I just um, thank you so much that in these tough passages, we see the awesomeness and the vastness of the forgiveness that, 
that you have given to us. Lord God, help us not to take that lightly. Um, Help us, Father, to keep on wrestling with this, particularly some of the tougher parts in this um, part of your word. Help us to do that graciously with one another. Help us to do that with love. But help us to do that in truth. Father, would you forgive us for um, all of the times and all of the things that we do and say and think that are against you. Lord, we are so, so sorry. We are so sorry, Father, that that grieves you and that we continue in that. But we thank you so much for your son. Amen.